Welcome back, everyone, for, I think this is episode three, and we're going through Richard Hooker, The Laws of Ecclesiastical Polity, and we're going to be doing chapter four, right? We're ready to go. Okay. So uh, I really like what we did last week. I, I, I kind of want to continue that because yes. uh, 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 Father Richard has carefully constructed his arguments and numbered them point by point, which is delightful, and I think it's fun to go through, and we're going to continue to utilize Kevin's uh, baritone voice as <laughs> our uh, reader as we go through. So I, I right. invite you to, to this chapter four, what has made the more learned approve this discipline? As for those of you who are a lantern to the rest and mold the hearts of others, not seeking to manipulate, because you have already been swayed by greater men, it is your burden to defend this cause by argument. For this you bring forth many verses from Scripture, but such that those things which you say logically and necessarily follow from Scripture turn out to be cobbled together only by poor and slight conjecture. I need not bring up any particular example of you doing this, since it would, in fact, be hard to find any examples of you doing otherwise. It is rather peculiar that your Presbyterian government should be so clearly taught by Christ and his apostles in Scripture, but never discovered by any church until now, while the sort of church government which you so resolutely oppose has been observed by Christians everywhere, and none of them noticed that it was forbidden by Scripture. I challenge you to find one church upon the face of the earth that has had such a church government or that has not been episcopally governed since the time of the apostles. <laughs> so he's laying down the gauntlet there. Yeah. Yeah. So he's writing at this point to clergy. And I think it's, you know, and, the, and you can just imagine the arguments, right, where these clergy are, you know, they're saying, look, you know, it's so clear in Scripture. Just look, you know, this is, this is the way that Jesus lived. This is the way the apostles lived. Are you seeing Jesus talking to bishops? Are you seeing Jesus deferring to kings and queens? You know, obviously this is the world that Jesus envis envisaged. And this is his yeah. response. is like, well, if that's the case, Why haven't so, we noticed? So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it might sound as though he's starting off uh, an argument from history, you know, I challenge you to find one face upon the one church upon the face of the earth that has had such a church government or that has not been episcopally governed since the time of the apostles. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, even if they found something, an example, um, that wouldn't settle it because he's really laying, he's about to lay the ground for, okay, you want to argue from scripture? How, in fact, do you make use of scripture? Because. Yes. The, a plain, self-evident reading, obviously, people are coming to very different conclusions or what they think yes. is a plain, self-evident reading. Cool. Okay, let's keep going. You offer many examples from history trying to show that the early church followed this discipline in this way and that it remains a pattern for us, a mirror of what Scripture supposedly teaches. But you do not really mean it and only say this because everybody else does. You complain whenever someone brings up the example of antiquity that anyone should look for examples of church government from prior times. You plainly think that from the time of the apostles to the present age, when you have at last discovered the truth, no age is a safe example to follow. You then cite from Eusebius the report of Hegesippus that, quote, until then the church had remained a virgin, pure and uncorrupted. 
But when the sacred band of the apostles and the generation of those who heard of the divine wisdom with their own ears passed on, then godless error began. Unquote. Clement also confirms that there was corruption immediately after the apostles' time, quoting the old proverb that few sons are like their fathers. And Socrates says around 430 AD, the Roman and Alexandrian bishops stopped being sacred rulers and fell to the level of merely secular rulers. Hmm. From this, you conclude that no form of church government is safe to follow except for that from the apostolic age. Hmm. Hmm. So I think we can sort of, so there's a second piece to this, I guess, that he's going to continue with. I, um, any thoughts? I don't know. Any thoughts on this before we continue? Because I feel like he's just, he's, he's setting up everything. Yes. Um, you're going to argue for, well, in the first place, it just says, you know, you're only, your arguments are, are grounded in the fact that everybody's, that you associate with are saying the same thing. But um, there's a contradiction here that, uh, um, the early church followed this pattern, but actually the record of the church from the time of the apostles is corrupt and not therefore reliable. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They're looking for some kind of golden age, but it's very hard to find, as you'll go on to say. Let's, okay, let's hear it. By the way, note that when you propose the pattern of the apostolic church as a pattern for all times, although you all agree about church government, you do not all have the same intentions. Laymen who are anxious for reform want the clergy to follow the pattern of apostolic poverty and be poor just as they were. This sort would be happy if the church was led by none but a company of begging friars. If it did add to the glory of God for his clergy to be as bare as the apostles when they had neither staff nor purse, then I hope that God also would give them the accompanying spirit, which Paul describes when he says he knew both to abound and to be in want. Philippians 4.12 this would be a fit mark of true episcopacy. The Church of Christ is a mystical body, and a body cannot stand unless all the parts are properly fitted and proportioned to one another. Please apply the same standard to both sides. If the clergy are to be poor like the apostles, let the laity be poor like those who are under them. There might be little wisdom in such an arrangement, but at least fairness. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I <laughs> Yeah, if you uh yeah, that's very uh that is very funny. It's like uh Austin Ferrer preaching on the occasion of a dedication of a new organ in an Oxford chapel who said, you know, people decry this kind of expense and say we should we should strip the churches. He said, Well, strip your own houses first and then strip the the house of God. <laughs> so <laughs> Yeah. So here yeah. too, uh, yeah, all very well to say that uh, the clergy should be, uh, you know, without, um, without money and just beg. But we better, we should all be in the same boat. Well, and there is a lot. Of, you can find that theme. I find that theme throughout sort of the church world. I find that the church seems to function best when we are able to take all of the gifts and talents and abilities that are thriving out in the world and find a way to bring them to church, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it be sort of professional expertise or um, well-reasoned arguments or, um, you know, or, or if, if, you, if there are financial gifts available, if there's a way that we can utilize them as a church, I think you can do a lot of really good things. 
but in each one of those cases, you can find people in the church that want, for example, they want the church to be a simpler place. Mm-hmm. Their workplace might be very, very complex and filled with very, very uh, complicated ideas and bright, intelligent people. I've encountered people that have that kind of work environment and seem to want the church to be a simplistic place, kind yes. of like their Sunday school experience. Yeah, yeah. Right? Or, um, you know, same thing with, you know, wanting the church to be desperately poor when they themselves might actually be quite well off and in a you know in a city that might be quite well off but there's this desire for the church to be disconnected from that in some way you know well indeed the you know the the keep it simple stupid argument that you that you allude to reminds me i think uh, at some point somebody asked carl bart you know the great uh protestant theologian of the 20th century you know know, so what's what's it all about and he said it's Jesus loves me, this I know, for yeah. the Bible tells me so. Well, if it were that simple, he wouldn't have written <laughs> voluminous, his voluminous <laughs> church dogmatics. It's not yeah. simple. It's actually quite complex. I mean, yes. that's one point. The other, I think, the thing that, uh, uh, you know, Hooker here is, is referring to is, yes, it's true that uh, the Church of Christ is, as he says, a mystical body, but it is a body. Yeah. And, and bodies actually need, as he says, to be properly fitted and proportioned to one another. You know, you can't, yeah. or if you want to put it another way, you, you can't carry a, a movement through history if it doesn't have some institutional form. And that institution has got to be fitted out in the best way possible for it to do what it needs to do. Yeah. Well, I think, and I, I don't think that there's anything wrong with, with that body also being fitted to sort of to be functional in our in our society, mm-hmm. I mean, one of the one of the themes that runs through his um, this this Presbyterian movement is a is a deep countercultural uh, urging, right? To be yes. you know a city on a hill, completely separated from all of the, you know, the terribleness of regular society yeah. and kind of and, leaner, leaner and meaner. Yeah, and and I think Hooker's church is very much a part of our society and our world and. And uh, and sort of almost redeems from within and as a part of things. And I, that's a church that I'm very comfortable with. And I, I, I love the articulation of that and his defense of that. Well, you sound very angry. <laughs> I, 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 get, I mean, get, I get, you know, obviously we're inheritors of that. Uh, we, we have not been sectarians who, uh, um, you know, kind of go off to be a city on a hill kind of sort of thing. Uh, at our worst, that means we have a bit of a slack embrace, but yeah. um, you know, there's nevertheless there's a, a gentle impetus towards sanctity. Uh, but uh, I, I will also say before we move on, mm-hmm. there is envy I think throughout the Anglican Church for other denominations that have that that uh, that kind of mindset. Yeah, you know, it's very. I think there's a certain clarity, like that. Uh, there's an ease almost to saying, "Oh, I'm not a part of any of that." You know, we right. we are. You know, if you want to be a part of this church, you have to, you have to, you know, cut ties to that old way of living and embrace this new way of living that we are doing on our in our church. Um, I think there's a clarity of a vision there that I think sometimes because I think it, there's a certain kind of stress that comes from simply being a part of the world. Um, you know. Yeah. So I don't think we're anybody's going to accuse. Hooker of being, say, a moral slacker or anything like that, but no. I mean, as this uh, chapter goes on, he's going to say, "Yeah, it is difficult, and it, it requires a lot of hard thought." Yeah, 
Okay, let's keep going. Rather than just sort of slogans and, and disciplines. So he says, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so if he was addressing uh, lay people in the first place, he goes on, but you who are clergy, if you still do not mind me calling you clergy, sometimes <laughs> seem to want more than even this. You think that perfect reform of the church means making the church just as it was in the time of the apostles, which is neither possible nor certain nor fitting. Not possible because scripture does not fully describe what form of church government existed in the time of the apostles. So we were setting up a standard that cannot be known and thus certainly cannot be practiced. Not certain because even within the apostolic period, Later times saw policies that had not been anticipated in earlier times, so that a general appeal to apostolic practice is much too vague, especially given that you yourselves waver in defining when the authoritative apostolic period ends. You say that although the frame of Antichrist's building was not yet set up, the foundations were secretly laid for it even in the apostles' times. So you reject all times except the apostolic period, Yet you only half-heartedly approve of even that period, leaving it rather doubtful by what principles we should follow their example. Finally, your appeal to the apostolic standard is not fitting for our present time. While the masses often go astray by favoring whatever is traditional, insisting that we return to it if things are going badly, and do not attempt to examine why things have changed, we can hardly tolerate such naivete in learned men like you who should understand well enough how the church must sometimes adapt itself to changing circumstances. Mm. To be sure, it is a good general rule, as Arnobius says, that the older a ceremony, the better. Not as an absolute rule, however, but only so far as the good intention behind such rites, orders, and ceremonies continues to apply in different times and circumstances. For instance, there are certain apostolic customs which if we tried to revive would be scandalous, such as the Holy Kiss, Romans 16, 16, and others, such as the love feasts, Jude 12, which no one now thinks needful. Conversely, there are many things not found in apostolic times, such as providing for the clergy by tithes, building almshouses for the poor, sorting people into parishes and so forth, not practical in the apostles' times, which are much more convenient and fitting for the church to retain than to remove merely for the sake of better conforming to the most ancient practice. See, like, mm -hmm. it's just so nice. I, I, do, were you familiar with Arnobius's general rule that the older a ceremony is, the better? Uh, no, but, but that sounds yeah. like what we would expect Hooker to uh, approve. <laughs> uh. Yeah. But at the same time, he, says, he makes it clear this is not an absolute rule that, um, that you know, as they apply in different times and circumstances, then that um, there's, there's some room for maneuver here. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, when uh, we watched Shane Parker being ordained a bishop, yes. it was in a manner such as I'm sure has never been done before and God willing will never be done again. But that to me was, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of the, the absolute minimum canonically and traditionally that was required for the ordination was there, but it was an instance of the church adapting to circumstances so that its leadership could go on. Um, maybe not a perfect example, but... Um, well, and I also just love the, the general sentiment of, you know, does it work? 
Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a good question. Is it? Is this? Is this a practical way to do things? Is I mean, you know, we've been like he establishes earlier on. You know, we have been given the abil- ability to reason. We've been given the ability ability to think critically. The Holy Spirit can work through that. When we look at the, our current form of church government, rather than asking, does this conform to Scripture in every way, we can't we not critically examine the way that we've structured our church polity and ask, is this working? Mm-hmm. Does it does it make sense for us to be for for certain neighborhoods to have a parish church? Is that is that a reasonable way to order things? You know, and what I love about this is he could he could be dropped into our time. And he could look at some ancient Anglican traditions and he might say, you know what? I don't know if that's working as well as it, as it did in my time. Maybe there would be a better way to order things. And it would be the Anglican tradition to say, well, you know, if this is an ancient practice, you know, we should take it really seriously. We should be really reluctant to abandon something that we've been doing for, say, 400 years or 1,000 years. But at the same time, is it truly working or not? Uh, there's a lot of nuance there. Yes. And, uh, you know, Scripture doesn't fully describe what form of church government existed. So there's no point in harkening back to a golden era. If it ever existed, we don't have access to it. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Which he goes on to drive the point further. Um, says, uh, okay, here we go. The apostolic order of the church should not be put forward as a sufficient or necessary rule for all churches. Even if it were, you still have to prove that your discipline was the apostolic form of church government. You've even failed to prove those things which you say are all important concerning the authority of lay elders and the distinction between doctors and pastors. In short, we can conclude that with the exception of our own time, one in which the insolence, pride, and contempt of all authority are at their worst, There has been no time when the complete form or even the basic substance of your model of church government was practiced. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's kind of... It matters, though. Like, it's... it's, I mean, and this is something where I I love these kinds of arguments for someone like me that loves new things, right? I'm always looking for some new way of doing something, you know. Um, But, I mean, these arguments really matter. I mean... After 2,000 years of Christian history, you know, is it, is it possible that the reason why nobody has thought of the thing that you're thinking about, Jeff, is because it's, <laughs> it's just not a good idea? Like, surely somebody's tried what you're thinking already, or maybe they haven't ever tried it for a really good reason. Or if they're trying it, uh, there's no agreement among those who are trying on what it's going to be, as you point out. Yeah. You, you, good it's just important so when this argument from antiquity fails you you appeal to learned men that seem to claim all christians should abandon our form of church government and adopt yours while you mention many men worthy of respect there are others whom you cite it would seem only to impress the more gullible who judge by quantity not quality yet surely those who know the quality and value of these men will think you're scraping from the bottom of the barrel But even if every one of them were as good as the best of them, their opinions and conjectures should not overrule the laws of the Church of England. This is doubly true, since they do not, in fact, all agree. And those few who do agree 
do so because they followed one man as their guide, and that one himself is not unlikely to have strayed. But if anybody happens to say that in the Apostles' time there were probably lay elders or or does not dislike having them in the church today or says that bishop was at first merely a synonym for presbyter or in any way praises churches without an Episcopal government or attacks those bishops that abuse their office, all these, you claim, are just as convinced as you that the law of God obligates every Christian church to remove bishops and replace them with elders. Anyone who thinks that all the names you invoke on your side is greatly deceived indeed. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, that's hilarious. That, I, I just, I'm thinking when they're <laughs> saying that about, you know, 150 doctors all declare blah, 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 or 150, yeah. I've, I've brought in 150 experts and they all agree with me. And then Hooker just carefully goes through and reads the... In fact, uh, most of them are rubbish. <laughs> yeah, a bunch of them are unqualified. And, and, and this person agrees with you on this point, but disagrees with you on that point. And, you know, this... <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, it's, uh, yeah. yeah, in other words, it's not a great argument just to have a lot of noisy people shouting uh, together. <laughs> that won't do. Yeah, yeah. But he, you know, he's, he concedes that, uh, you know, they may have some points. So he says, uh, on some of the main points about your church government, I concede that there is a general agreement among many of the Reformed churches abroad. Certainly the learned in other churches were inclined to do as did the Church of Geneva, since the tedious workings of public authority made reform come a little too slowly for a people eager to change everything right away. They had no time to think up a form of church government other than that form which had been already had been already been devised and was ready to hand, had already been tried in similar situations, could be established without delay, and easily pleased the people because of the power it gave them. Therefore, since the example of this one church was followed by the rest, due to the necessity of circumstances, it should not surprise us to find among all them all a remarkable consensus about the key points of church order. We should not marvel greatly when people who do the same thing agree about why they are doing it. Hmm. Yeah. So, to the extent that there is unanimity, it was, uh, as he, he maintains, it was convenient. They wanted to move, so they saw a working model and they took it on. Yeah. Okay, let's keep going because this, this next bit is just right. so much fun. Consider also what Galen once said about philosophy, in which people decide their beliefs in the same way they evaluate rumors. People will often be persuaded by a credible man, but when two, three, or four good men agree about something, the issue is thought to be beyond debate, and thus often they are all led astray, either by all erring in judgment at the same point, or by too credulously deferring to the testimony of one. Even if ten people offer the same testimony, if it turns out that their knowledge comes from only one of them, then we should treat their testimony as if there had been only one of them. It is the same in the issue at hand. When daughter churches speak their mother church's dialect, when many sing one song because their choir master sings it, a man whose authority amongst the greatest divines we have already described. You might very well ask why so many learned men follow one man's judgment without being compelled by an argument. To ask the question is to answer it. You are reluctant to imagine that those who have in matters of doctrine achieved a knowledge unsurpassed since the time of the apostles should err when it comes to church government. Such is our human tendency. 
that whenever we admire somebody for their achievements in great things, it is hard to persuade us that they err in anything. Yeah. The reason for this is that dead flies cause the oil of the perfumer to send forth an evil odor. So doth a little folly outweigh wisdom and honor. Ecclesiastes 10.1 In virtually every profession, this has given the opinions of a few undue influence so that Luther can do no wrong in the eyes of the Germans and Calvin none in the eyes of many of the Reformed churches. We see, however, that God presents many models of virtue in Scripture, yet none of them is totally without sin, in order that to him alone we might say, Thou only art holy, thou only art just. Thus it is not up to us whether God in his wisdom might permit some worthily vessels of his glory to be blemished with the stain of human frailty, so that we would not esteem anyone more than he deserves. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, how many things mm. are going on today? You know, I'm just, all this last sort of section, I, I, I just keep, I mean, I'm thinking about Facebook, you know, where somebody posts something and especially if they're like a really good person or they're yes. a wise person and that gets upvoted and linked and shared and becomes a meme and everybody buys into this, whatever it is. And, uh, yeah, In, influ influencers or something. Yeah, and it could be, and they could be wrong, and and they well, how can they be wrong? They have, you know, it's been shared, you know, one point two million times, you know, and it's well, it's it's still wrong. How can it be wrong? This person is so smart. Yes. This person is so successful. This person is so wise. Well, even the people we admire the most can can make mistakes. They could be right on any number of things, but wrong on this on this one point, and that's. That's okay. That's, you know, what's that line? There's a, such is our human tendency that whenever we admire somebody for their achievements in great things, it is hard to persuade us yes, yeah. that they err in anything. Yeah. Uh, uh, that's absolutely just and true. I mean, we're all yeah. complicit in that. Um, yeah. I mean, you pick your heroes and it's just super hard to not buy into their whole thing. I mean, one of the strangest things, one of the most exciting things for me sometimes in terms of thinking about politics is to look at the political platforms of parties from 100 years ago. Yes. Um, I remember I listened to this. It was a podcast I think I was listening to about American history and they were describing the political platforms of the two parties in the States in, say, the, the 1880s. And what was hilarious for me was that about, you know, half of them turned out to be, uh, you know, each, each party, they had positions that were both, uh, that I would agree with today and disagree with today, or that, that, that ended up being sort of historically folly or historically, you know, wise. Yes. And, and yet for people at that time, they were completely linked to one party a hundred percent or the other party a hundred percent and were oblivious to the errors of that, of that particular um, partisan platform, and I'm sure it's the same today. Yeah, I think you right. know part of the. I, I, I'm, I'm sure you're right. Um, the tendency to uh, to identify with your with your tribe and, and somehow um, delegitimize other people. That's that's where you know that's the extreme form of it. Whether it's in politics in the civic sphere or politics in the church, uh, you've got to remember. We're really, at the distance of some time, 
makes it clear, you know, you're really partners in an ongoing debate rather than utterly separated camps that just speak past one another. You know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. uh, I mean he, 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 well, he's, he's, he's willing... <laughs> I mean, at least Hooker is willing to, to recognize, you know, in Calvin, you've got somebody who is superbly, superbly versed in the scriptures, a, a great theological thinker. Yes. Um, he'll grant that. And so they're on common ground there. Uh, they desire the, the good of the church. They desire the, that it be, um, you know, renewed by a, a fresh reading of the scriptures. But just because Calvin is so good on so much doesn't mean he's good on everything. And if you um, mm-hmm. absolutize him and deny that your opposing party has also tried to be engaged in in the same reform and re- renewal of the church, then um, you just are caught in a kind of tribal blindness, similar in a political yes. sphere. If you don't, if you, um, you know, you can vociferously argue your your case to your opponents, but you've got to recognize we're together trying to work out this, you know, in our society, this democratic project of moving forward. It, it's not like only one side has all the truth and the other aren't even a legitimate partner in the discussion. Mm-hmm. Well, and what I think, and the big, the big, I think what makes Richard Hooker so fun to read now, and so um, I think satisfying, is that he doesn't have, he doesn't have a figure that he's presenting to battle Calvin and Luther. Right. He, he's arguing for a process. Yeah, yeah, for he'll... a way of talking and a way of thinking. He's not saying Calvin's wrong because my guy's right. He's saying, I, I, I think that there is merit to what he's saying. I think there's also some flaws in his argument. Let's all look at this. Let's all look at this argument together with clear eyes. Yeah, he's probably yeah. harder on, you know, Calvin's purported followers than he is on Calvin himself. Um, yeah, but uh, you know, he's going to. Um, he's going. You know, we're going to set up for, for, for coming weeks. But you know, he's he's setting up uh, that. Uh, Sometimes the scripture is not completely clear, and so then what do you do? Um, yeah. Yeah. And you know you can appeal to. Obviously, you have to use your judgment, your reason. You can also you may have to appeal to the the exegetical tradition of the fathers. There, you know, there is a body. You know, it's not a single voice, but there's there's certainly a body that says here's the general direction. And then uh, if you still can't figure it out. Uh, and this might be a little harder to apply in our situation is, you know, you, uh, you defer to the magistrate or the magistrate's ecclesiastical designates. You know, the state has a, a role in an established church to, uh, to figure things out. But we're get, getting, getting ahead of ourselves here. Yeah. Well, it's, I don't know. I, I just really, it's just a very, I, I think this is one of the reasons why, why we can be excited about reading Hooker today is just, it's the way that he's the way that he's approaching these arguments that I think can stand the test of time. And he uh, said, you know, he s- makes his case so well. Some of the uh, the little jabs and the uh, ironies and the, <laughs> the witticisms are yeah. are are really inspired. Something else that I was thinking about when he was arguing this, and I wonder if it's true in our own age, is. Um, you know, he, he's saying that a lot of these, he describes how 
you know, it looks like there's this whole group of people making uh, sort of a united argument. But the reality is they're all basing all of their various arguments around the persuasive argument of one credible person. Yes. And I wonder if we're if we are equally aware in our own time that sometimes there are, you know, behind every movement, there's really, you know, it could be that just it's the ideas of one particular writer or influencer that yes. has crafted this particular argument. And really the whole thing is resting upon um, a single well-reasoned argument that may have some merit and may also have some flaws uh, rather than it being this huge sort of brand new thing. It's yes. really just an argument. Yes, yes. Uh, and, and as such, you know, when we, when we want to respond to a movement, we really can just like, okay, all of this is really sitting on this particular argument that this particular person has made, which may be a policy, yeah, a policy proposal, right? Um, you know, and, and maybe we can just look at that policy and put it through the ringer and say, is this, is this going to work? Is this feasible? Is this cogent? And, and kind of get around all the, the emotion of, you know, say in these times, we could have millions of people behind a particular argument. Let's just look at the argument. Let's not debate on Facebook about this person. Are you on this side or that side? Or, or get, get, get washed up in this whole movement. Let's just look at the argument itself and see if it stands on its own merit. I mean, how useful would that approach be in, yeah, our, in what our time a, today? What a notion. <laughs> and, and, you know, he, he's, he's pointing out they do rather tend to cherry pick among their apostolic customs. Um, since, you know, he, he mentions, for example, uh, uh, you know, it's well attested in scripture, uh, the holy kiss. He refers to Romans 16, 16. You know, this is... Yeah. Men kissing men and women kissing women. Uh, are you prepared to do that now? And I, for my part, I would say, well, I do not take my holy religion that seriously, frankly. Um, <laughs> um, and neither did uh, his disciplinarian opponents. Um, just because yeah. something once existent doesn't necessarily mean, um, you know, if precedent from Scripture was enough to uh, argue for the continuance of some piece of, of uh, church order, then... Um, why aren't we doing this? Well, I mean, a, a hilarious version of that that we we encounter every uh, Monday Thursday is mm. Jesus is really very firm in the Gospel yeah. of John. He does not tell the disciples to um, you know to observe uh, anything like a holy supper mm -hmm. in John. He 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 very dramatically washes the feet of the disciples. And then he instructs them very clearly. He says, "This is this is how do you, this. you mm -hmm. will, yeah, do this." And, and, and you, I want you to do this as a way of sort of signifying, you know, this new way that that you know you're going to live your life. The the way that you're going to understand leadership and power, and it's a it's a really powerful gesture. And for two thousand years, the church has been like, "Wow, you know." I mean, we've done these moments. There's always a symbolic foot washing that we we'll often see throughout the Christian world, and. Pope Francis very famously, I don't know if he did it last year, but he's definitely done it where he goes to a particular place and mm -hmm. washes the feet of people who are outcasts of society. And it's in the news, you know, it's a very powerful symbol. But if we take Jesus's words literally, um, that's really supposed to be a huge part of the way we 
live our lives as Christians is washing feet all over the place. Yes, yes. <laughs> to be fair, there are actually some Christian traditions, like Mennonites, who do this on a regular basis. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but by and large, no, by and large, no. No, people... And uh, yes, we do also, as he says, we do all kinds of things that aren't explicitly found in Scripture, providing right. for the clergy by ties, building almshouses for the poor. Um, so, you know, building almshouses for the poor. Uh, we don't build almshouses, but we continue to think that it is a good thing to try to serve and care for the poor, even if there isn't a specific example of, you know, Anglican social ministries to be found in Scripture, we would say. Yeah, but the spirit, the intention is there. But that requires thinking out how are you going to apply it in our in our situation. Well, another another example of this that that could go down. We could go down a whole rabbit hole with this. But I I, uh, I took a course on environmental theology, mm-hmm. and one of the tragedies of a very uh, sort of a biblicist approach to Christianity. Is a is a blindness around um, climate change? Yes, because you can't find in Scripture climate change, or really, and, and, and especially the the ecology that Scripture was written in—a desert ecology. Uh, there's not a lot of damage that you can do in a lot of these places, you know. In the same way that you know, so so. What I'm trying to say is, you you, you have a because there are no examples in Scripture. Of, of, of dealing with environmental destruction and climate change, we have millions of Christians that are not particularly concerned because they can't find it in Scripture. And it's, it's a real tragedy uh, because there are a lot of very wealthy, very powerful Christians that subscribe to that style of Christianity that are, in the name of Jesus, totally disinterested in, in addressing the, uh, the horrors of climate change. And it's... it's it's actually a big problem. <laughs> it's a big problem in the church that we aren't all on board with this. Absolutely. Fortunately, there are some... Uh, well, I mean, as you know, there are lots of, um, of uh, Christians who are actually trying to read the scriptures in a way that responds to this crisis. And, and fortunately, there are evangelical Christians. I can think of such as... Um, climate scientist Catherine Hayhoe who uh, mm-hmm. she lives in Texas which at the risk of oversimplifying things is uh, often a, yeah. is a large center for people who um, are of the ilk you describe uh, and yet how, she's yeah. say you know you can read the scriptures in such a way it says that we have uh, they give us uh, the authority and the, the necessity the drive the, the urgency of responding to this I know, but how slow and awkward is that argument? Like, yeah. you know, to sort of, you know, to have to, to have to go through Scripture, to have to build a whole new hermeneutic for looking at Scripture just to address a sign. I mean, a scientific problem. It's, it's probably the same thing in those cultures. It could be around coronavirus and and buying into that. I mean, it's just it's just a very very slow and ponderous way to to argue about very tangible, very practical challenges. I think. <laughs> Indeed. 
<laughs> Anyways, so I, I, <laughs> so I think I think this is good. So I think we and we reach we have reached the end of, of chapter four. So, um, so I think we've done a good job stay, of stay over- stay tuned, folks. Chapter stay tuned. I next you know. Sorry, I didn't mean to step on your words, Kevin. No, no, just it's uh, he only gets better. He only well, that's good. That's good. I'm enjoying myself already, so I'm I'm glad. Um, thank you, Kevin. Thank for, you, Jeff. Uh, for joining me. Okay. Great. Bye. Bye-bye.